Well, next Sunday, we jump into a new sermon series, and it's going to be be on the book of James. Uh, The series is called Faith with Hands and Feet, and uh, we are going to learn together from James about what it means to live out the royal law of love and how living a life of love shows up in really practical and daily sorts of ways. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, that time that we get to dive into that together. But as I've been praying through where the congregation is, uh, what God is up to in our midst right now, and what his invitations to us might be as a church family, um, I really felt prompted to postpone that by one week in order for us to, um, to reflect on something else as we come into the new year. What I want to share with you has a whole lot to do with just what God has been stirring in me in the last six or eight months. Sparked by lots of reading and lots of praying and reflecting and conversation that I've been part of, including my time with the Lord each morning. Some of you know that for the past 10 years or so, Now, every time I sit down, uh, virtually without exception, every time I sit down to be with the Lord in the morning, I always start with Deuteronomy 33, 12. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him. For he will shield him all day long, and the one the Lord loves will dwell between his shoulders. Before I've accomplished anything, before I've done anything to be a delight to God and worthy of his affection for me, I'm already held, I'm already embraced, I'm already loved, I'm already carried. And uh, it has been profound for me to begin uh, my time each morning with that reminder for a decade. Every morning I also read one of the Psalms, and sometimes I stay in the same Psalm for a long time, and I read uh, a chapter from somewhere else in the Old Testament, from one of the Gospels, and from somewhere else in the New Testament each morning. And one of the things that has struck me is over the course of the fall, this this consistent theme keeps surfacing in my time in the Psalms. See if you hear the thread. Psalm 62, verse 1. My soul finds rest in God alone. 63, verse 5. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy me, satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Psalm 90, verse 1, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 131, verse 2, my soul has become calm quiet, and contented in you. Those lines became the theme that I began praying for each of my family members every day, uh, all fall. And because you are my family members, because you are my brothers and sisters, it's been a joy for me to pray those for you as well. Finding our rest, finding our satisfaction in God alone. Part of why those verses have really stood out and spoken to me uh, this fall is because of where God has had me working, as you know, through a number of kind of unexpected uh, health concerns that have surfaced. So needing to trust God 
uh, all the more with the shepherding and direction of the church as I've kind of been in and out of commission. They've also stood out to me because of where we find ourselves uh, as a church family, as a nation, as a world, with so much disruption and all of us experiencing so much unrest and dissatisfaction in our life circumstances. But those passages have also really spoken to me and really leapt off the page because of of how they have woven together with and echoed some significant reading that I've been doing over the past six or eight months. To just bring you into a little bit of that, I've been reading uh, five related books recently. I just listened again to Philip Carey's uh, awesome uh, audio class called Augustine Philosopher and Saint, in which he kind of gives an overview, among other things, of Augustine's understanding of what human existence is all about, and, and especially what our loves are meant to look like. I've been part of a couple of groups that have had incredibly rich conversation about a book that I'm rereading for the third time now, David Noggle's uh, amazing book called Reordered Loves, Reordered Lives. Just, I think, if, if you're in a group or just wanting some uh, grist for your own growth, um, I don't know a better book to recommend that you would spend some time with with your group. David Noggle, Reordered Loves, Reordered Lives, all of which is rooted in Augustine's thinking. I've also uh, started reading Catherine of Siena's dialogue uh, in my devotional time. She wrote this in the 1300s, and it constantly echoes Augustine's teaching and wisdom. And I also just finished reading uh, Hannah Arndt's uh, amazing Um, study kind of the core of her uh, vocational career called uh, Love and St. Augustine, in which she kind of gathers together and summarizes all of Augustine's uh, thought and teaching about this central biblical theme. All of those things then carried me back into Augustine's writings uh, himself, and I've been reading that in a great compilation uh, that's called Late Have I Loved the Selected Writings of St. Augustine on Love. So as you may know, Augustine was a pastor and also a theologian who lived in the late 300s and the early 400s. And it is safe to say that his writings have shaped the thinking of the church more than any other person outside of the scriptures. But most of us only encounter Augustine indirectly today through the writings of other people. And there are many whose own thought has been shaped by his. So Between these psalms, which constantly speak of finding rest and satisfaction in God, and then this immersion in the writings of Augustine, who keeps coming back to that as his primary and central theme, it feels for me like a map of the human heart and soul has kind of been unrolling in front of me in the past six months. And uh, and I'm becoming more and more familiar with its contours. So let me give you a quick tour of the way that Augustine frames in a faithful biblical understanding about human love and longing. If I were to give you the lay of the land, these would be the eight most important features of it. And I think you're going to be able to see as we start into this uh, that they not only fit together in a really significant way, but they are also incredibly relevant for us today. We tend to think something written in the three or four hundreds, how in the world could that speak to me today? And I think we're going to find this morning that it feels like it was written this morning. So 
Some important things, I think, for us to, to stop and pause and to consider as we start into this new year. First, we were created by God and for God. We exist for God. He made us for himself. This is the most important starting point in any consideration of who we are as human beings. Revelation 4.13, you created all things, and for your pleasure they were created and have their being. Second, by implication, that means as one's created by God, God knows the best way for us to live and to love and to order the affections and attachments of our heart. I love the line from Psalm 119 that says, you made me, you created me, now give me the sense to follow your commands. You know best how my life should be lived. Help me to live it in keeping with your design. Three, what's true about us is also true about everything and everyone else that we will ever look upon in this world. God has surrounded us with other things and with other people, every single one having been created by God and also existing for God. And God has blessed us with them. He has given them to us, all of them, as gift, as an expression of his love for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We won't be hearing uh, correctly this morning if we hear what we're saying is God only. Not at all. We are called to love and to delight in what he's surrounded us with. Four. We were created, every single one of us, by God with a profound and driving desire, a craving, a hunger, a thirst. Craving to enjoy, to find satisfaction and fulfillment in, to find rest in, to have and to hold some great object of our great desire. And the human experience is dominated by the pursuit of that satisfaction probably more than anything else. You've heard me read before this, I think, incredibly insightful line from Ronald Rollheiser's book, The Holy Longing, another who has been greatly shaped by Augustine's thinking. He writes, there is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. This desire lies at the center of our lives, we are not easeful people who occasionally get restless. The reverse is true. We are congenitally diseased, only experiencing occasional peace. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Whatever the expression, everyone is ultimately talking about the same thing, an unquenchable, an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that cannot be tamed, an all-embracing ache that lies at the center of the human experience and is the ultimate force that drives everything else. This dis-ease is universal. And then he says this, uh, which I think is a, absolutely a stunningly insightful comment. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire. Do you resonate with his description of the human heart? Five, 
our craving, our desire, our thirst, has some real object that corresponds to it and can and will satisfy it if we turn to it. It's part of the way that God has made and designed existence. The surrounding world corresponds to our hungers and our needs. Thirst is answered by water that God provides. Hunger is answered by food that he gives to us generously. Weariness is is answered by sleep and rest that is his gift to us. There is some something that corresponds to every deep craving and desire in us. Six, God alone can satisfy that deepest of all human desires, that deepest hunger and thirst. Psalm 62, verse 1, my soul finds rest in God alone. I don't know if you've discovered yet uh, the book called Ponce's by Blaise Pascal. Uh, It's an incredible book. It's actually just the makings of a book. Pascal died uh, very young uh, before he was able to complete the book. And Ponce's just means thoughts. It's the collection of some of the things he wanted to turn into a book. Uh, So many incredible insights, but listen to this one. What else does does his craving proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite object. In other words, by God himself. The corollary to that truth, God alone can satisfy that deepest of all desires, is this, that nothing else can satisfy that desire. Nothing. Whatever it is. Your husband or your wife, your children or your parents, your family, your work, your health or fitness, adventure or travel, friendship, romance, sexual fulfillment, sports accomplishments, awards and recognition, health and fitness, wealth possessions, beauty, your home, your alma mater, your nation. Everything else will always disappoint us in the end. It will never last, and it was never made to satisfy us in that way in the first place. It cannot bear the weight of that expectation. Psalm 62, verse 1, my soul finds rest in God alone. One of the best lines written outside of scripture from the Confessions by Augustine, it's really the main thesis of his whole spiritual autobiography. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you hear God's invitation to you this morning? Where all this leads for Augustine is here. Just as there are two objects of our affection, God, who alone can satisfy us, and all the rest which God intends for us to enjoy, but is incapable of bringing true rest and satisfaction to our souls, so also we are called to two different kinds of loves. We are to love God by enjoying him, finding our rest and satisfaction in him, having and holding him eternally, and we are to love all else with reference to God 
and for the sake of God. Not with reference to ourselves and for our own sake. Receiving it as gift from God, but never elevating it to the place of God in our lives. C.S. Lewis has this incredible insight. He says uh, that when we elevate a gift to a place uh, that it was not intended to have in our lives, it becomes a God for us, and then it quickly becomes a demon. Some of you are familiar with the uh, Greek myth of Tantalus, which is where we get our word tantalize. Tantalus, in his pride, stole ambrosia and nectar from the gods, so Zeus sentenced him to suffer forever in the underworld. He put him in a pool of water up to his neck, and then he planted a tree right next to him, which had a branch laden with ripe fruit hanging right over his head. But every time in his hunger that he tried to reach up for the fruit, the branch pulled away. And every time in his thirst that he tried to bend down and get a drink, the water receded. So he was condemned to hunger and to thirst forever. According to Augustine, if we fail to look to God as the satisfaction for our deepest desire, and if we look elsewhere for satisfaction and rest, we, like Tantalus, will be condemned to a life in which we are always tantalized and never satisfied. So some questions. Where are you looking for rest and satisfaction? What have you landed on as the object of your desire? How capable is that object of your affection to satisfy you and to do so eternally? One of my favorite parables is always one of the shortest and one of the most mysterious and one of the most provocative ones. Matthew 13, 44. This is the whole parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had. And he bought that field. This is our family treasure box. Every time our grandkids come over, uh, we always put something in this, a gift for each of our grandkids, and then we hide this somewhere in our house, under the cushions on the couch or, or underneath the knee hole in a desk or in the dryer or the refrigerator or, or somewhere. And the moment our grandkids arrive, including six-week-old Eli when he was here over Christmas, uh, even without taking coats and shoes off, they go dashing off in search of our treasure box, and we play the warmer and colder game until they finally stumble upon it and open it up and get to enjoy it. Matthew 13, 44 is about a similar treasure hunt. So just three things to notice that I think will help open up what I think is a pretty obvious parable. First, about the kingdom of heaven, it is so important that we recognize this is not a paraphrase for heaven. This is not talking about a place. It is referring to a relationship, a unique relationship between Jesus as king and us as his subjects. That's all you need to make a kingdom is a king and loyal subjects. Jesus says, entering into that relationship with Jesus as king is like finding hidden treasure. It is the grandest thing that can ever happen to us. 
Second, just a, a word about this business of hiding the treasure again and then going and buying the field. Because of the way that we in the modern West think about property law, that sounds pretty suspicious. It sounds like pretty unethical behavior. But actually, according to property law in the ancient world, where the finder's keeper's rule was very much in play, this man is actually going out of his way to do the ethical and fair thing. Instead of just strolling off with the treasure, which he was entitled to, he pays for it appropriately. Now, the point of the parable. In his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that field. If we think that this is a parable about the sacrifice and loss and hardship of following Jesus, we have completely misunderstood it. This is a story of absurd good fortune. As he comes into great riches and abundance and experiences incredible and lasting joy. It's obvious the way the story unfolds that this man thinks that he got an incredible deal. Why? Because he finally found the one thing which would actually satisfy his desire. He does not have to search anymore. Nothing else will satisfy like this will. Nothing else. So, so everything else is, law, uh, um, is less important than this is. And having this is having the only real and lasting joy. And Jesus says, that treasure, that one-of-a-kind experience of joy and rest and satisfaction is found in and only in a relationship with him as king. I think it's so easy for us to go through life seeing the treasure box jutting out of the ground, but letting it stay there and letting it be just one thing among anything, many things that we look to for satisfaction. Other people, other things, other pursuits, other causes, other passions. We go through life with indiscriminate desire and we seek its fulfillment indiscriminately in all that surrounds us, God included. God is just one of many loves of our heart and one of many objects of our affection. But these psalms and this parable press us and the biblical insights of Augustine press us to rethink radically how we view the place of God in our lives. And I think this is so valuable and important for us to consider as we come into the new year. In a letter to a woman asking him for spiritual counsel, Augustine summed up the biblical view in this way. We love God for what he is in himself. And in that, we experience real satisfaction. And we love ourselves and our neighbors for his sake with reference to him. According to Jesus and the scriptures and Augustine, this is how God would have us reorder our lives and our loves. So what place does God occupy in your life? Is he one thing among many things in your life or is he the one thing over everything else in your life? In his confessions towards the end, Augustine writes this, how noble is each rational creature that you have made for nothing less than yourself can, can suffice to give it any measure of blessed rest. Nor indeed can it be its own satisfaction for it is you, Lord, who will light up our darkness. Give me yourself. Oh my God, give yourself to me. I 
pray that that is the cry of our souls. We were made for him. Nothing else will satisfy us. My soul finds rest in God alone. He is the one thing that is worth everything else in exchange. So as we come into the new year, think for a moment about your own life. What have you attached your affection to? What do you look to for satisfaction and rest? What's the object of your deepest desire? What's the treasure on which you have bet all that you have? What's the thing in your treasure box? What do you hear God saying to you this morning? I'm going to close with two great prayers, ones that I think would be great for us to memorize. One from Julian of Norwich, writing in the 1300s, the other from Moses in Psalm 90. And I want to encourage you to make these prayers your prayers this morning and this year. I'm, uh, part of the biblical tradition at times uh, is to pray standing uh, as a way of honoring God and presenting the whole of our lives before him. So I'm going to have us close in prayer by reading these prayers. I'm just going to ask you to stand, and then we'll go straight out of these prayers and into singing the doxology. I'm going to read the first one, and then I'm going to ask us to read the second one out loud, out loud together. Let's make these our prayers as we come into the new year. God, of your goodness, give me yourself. You are Enough for me. And if I ask anything that is less, I shall always lack something. But in you alone, I have everything. And let's pray this one together. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love. So we may sing for joy to the end of our lives.